It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Rico Bronia. As the Mets lose two out of three to the Minnesota Twins, they do salvage the final game of this series. I wonder, I wonder how many Met fans, even those that are listening to the Rico, were locked in on a Sunday afternoon, week one of the NFL season, and enjoyed every second of that incredible pitching duel between Pablo Lopez and Tyler McGill. I'm assuming the number is low, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no Jets, maybe no Giants. Maybe people were just sitting there at 2 o'clock saying, I need some Mets twins. I had it on in my rotation because with the YouTube TV NFL Sunday ticket, which I got to hand it to them, it got off to a good start. There were no glitches or anything like that. I had all the games set up. I had the Met game set up. I did not have the Yankee game set up. And <laughs> I don't know if you guys heard about this. They got no hit into the freaking 11th inning of the game. And then crazy stuff happened. But as far as the Mets are concerned, we'll go game by game. And then there's some broader things we'll talk about, including Buck Showalter maybe reacting to the negativity of creating lineups based on opponents. And also a new rumor, a new name to kind of think about over the next few weeks as we head into this offseason. And that's maybe the best player of our generation, Mike Trout, potentially being available. So we'll get to all that stuff later. We'll start off with the opener. I think the big positive out of Friday night, and really the only thing you could take out of Friday night, outside of just beating your head against the wall because the bullpen continues to stink and guys take turns having implosions, is that Kodai Senga, on a night where his command was not great, on a night where he wasn't his best and he wasn't his most dominant against a pretty good Minnesota lineup, gave you another quality start. And I think that everything that's happened since the trade deadline around Senga specifically has been a major positive. He has, at least for me, I hope for many of my fellow Met fans, eased any concerns about what he is and what he could be. Because to me, one of the most impressive things you can do to prove you're an ace or when you are an ace is to be good to really solid when you don't have your best stuff. You don't have your best command, and your off night turns into a six-inning, two-run kind of performance. And that's one of the things I always used to marvel about with Jake when he was here, that DeGrom's worst starts were still good starts. You know, they weren't good for him, but he kept you in a baseball game. And you go look at Friday night's game, they ended up losing, obviously, and there's a myriad of reasons why. Offensively, they did nothing after a quick start. and like we talked about with this bullpen, there's nobody in this bullpen you could trust. So guys take turns on imploding. And in Friday night's case, it was Sean Reed Foley, another guy who has no chance to be on the roster next year. And if he is on the roster next year, that's a problem. But Senga's command for the first time in probably two months was off. And he was able to battle through it. And that's one of the things we've seen from Kodai throughout his rookie season. So when you examine this quote-unquote irrelevant part of the Mets season that they've been on, which has now lasted over a month and a month and a half almost, and we still have 20 games to go, and we've got the rest of September where, let's face it, they're playing out the string. Now, that's, that's what we're looking at. So you try to find things that matter and find things that you can look at. And I talked last time on the Rico, we'll readdress it because we got some emails about it, that there isn't much you can take out of performances over the final month of the year. Well, Kodai's saying we're not looking at the final month. We're looking at the whole resume. We're looking at 
his entire rookie season. And, and to me, he's the biggest positive. Now, when we look at 2023, and obviously there's tons of negatives, and we'll spend a lot of time going through that during the offseason, the biggest positive has been the season of Kodai and the development of Kodai. So as frustrated as I was when Sean Reed Foley lit the game on fire, and also there was another moment in this game I was frustrated, by the way, which included Senga, not to kill him, but the Mets take the lead, and instantly we got to see Carlos Correa tie the game up. That was a pain in the ass. Like, that's not something anybody wants to see. I don't have ill will necessarily towards Carlos Correa. I don't dislike him. I don't even blame him for what happened uh, during the offseason. But I don't want to see him perform well. And I don't want to see him perform well against the Mets. And I don't want to see that decision to walk away from Correa be one that we regret. So the Mets are down early. They score the two runs in the fourth inning. And boom, Carlos Correa ties the game up. And I'm going to spend a little time on Correa a little bit too because I think it's worth reexamining what happened and if we should be thrilled that it didn't happen in light of seeing him for the last three days in this three-game series. That was my one big negative with Kodai, giving up the home run to Carlos Correa. But overall, he delivered six innings. He walked four guys, which is a lot, and something he hadn't done in a while. How about this? It is the first time since June. So you're looking at three months since the middle of June. Yeah, three months. My math is right that he walked three or more guys in a game. And that was one of the big critiques early. Hoff used to say it right here on the Rico. I walks too many guys. He hasn't. He did on Friday night, but he hasn't really throughout the season. So he gave him the six quality innings. He threw 101 pitches. I can't complain with him coming out of the game. And then we get Sean Reed Foley. And this is the part of playing out the string that is so difficult to watch. When you look at this lineup, a lot of guys in this lineup are either going to be here next year, we really want them to be next year, or are guys that are almost auditioning for next year. Whether we take a lot out of their performance or not, Ronnie Mauricio, Brett Beatty, to a degree even DJ Stewart these days, Mark Vientos, they are legitimate possibilities for the 2024 roster. So when they play well or they struggle, you could at least say you're watching something that matters. When we have to watch in a tie game in the seventh inning, Sean Reed Foley, and I'm happy for this guy, came back from a major injury, good for him. But when we got to watch him implode the game, a part of you says, well, it doesn't matter. He's not going to be on the team next year. But then the other part of you is like, well, I'm watching him though. And that's where it feels like a waste of time. Like, we're experts on playing out the string as Met fans. We've seen this a lot. This is not a new world for us. For our friends who are Yankee fans, brand new world. They don't really know what it's like having a meaningless month. Even the years where they missed the playoffs, they were sort of in it until the very end. This is the first time for them where they're playing completely irrelevant games. We, on the other hand, were used to it. And the thing that's always bothered me over the years is when you watch guys who have no shot to be on the roster or if they're on the roster, we're screwed. I hate to bring this name up again because it's the one name that jumps out at me and it's rather recent. Whenever I think of playing out the string with veteran guys with no chance to be on your team, I think of Nori Aoki. That's who I think of. I don't know why. But at least I'm giving you a recent example. I'm not going back to 1997. But they did lose this game 5-2. to two. Five to two. Sean Reed Foley stinks. They got nothing offensively. They had four hits in this game. 
Tim LaCastro had one of them. Uh, it was just a kind of a nothing performance. Just a nothing performance. The positive is Kodai Sangin. Now we get to game two. And it's so funny to me. Game two, in a lot of ways, even though, you know, David Peterson was okay. In fact, his pitching line's not even that far off from Kodai. But game two is very, very similar to game one. And here's why. The Mets scratch out a couple of runs, which they got very early in this game. Brandon Nimmo hit a leadoff home run, and he continues to have a pretty good power season. So they scratch out a run early. They were up 2-0 before you could blink. And then David Peterson immediately gives it back, or at least (coughs) an inning later gives it back, 2-2. They go down 3-2. Peterson is able to get through the six innings, give you a quality performance. He still straggles that line of, yeah, it was good, it was decent, but it doesn't move the needle on how you feel about him, if that makes any sense. Because I think there's a part of us still watching Peterson and McGill even though most of us have made our decisions about what we think about them and what their roles should be in 2024. I said last time on the Rico, there's not much they can do of anything that's going to change that. But yeah, we still watch them with maybe a, a sliver of hope. And Peterson was okay. You know, but besides giving up the lead, which stinks, he gave him six innings. He allowed three runs. That's a quality start. If they were getting a lot of that earlier this season, this season could have played out very, very differently. But it's the same thing in terms of close game, quality performance by the starter, and now we've got to hand the baseball to the bullpen. So in the roulette of, okay, which reliever is going to take a giant dump on the mound today, the guy that drew the straw is Drew Smith, who again, I, I think we've all come to this conclusion. Drew Smith may be on the roster next year. He may be a little different than the Sean Reed Foley's of the world and the Phil Bickford's of the world who may be just filling up a seat this season. Drew Smith may be on the roster next year, but there ain't a chance in hell any of us trust him. There's not a chance in hell when we're breaking down the offseason and we're previewing 2024, any of us are going to say, well, you never know what you're going to get from Drew Smith because he's mostly been awful. And he was awful on Saturday. So a game that was 3-2, to two, a game that was close, gets completely blown open when he gives up four runs in the seventh inning. Then you get the power late. DJ Stewart hits a home run as he returns from a side issue. Pete Alonzo hits a home run, which is enjoyable because I think all of us just want to see Pete hit as many home runs as humanly possible. I don't know if it means much at the end of the day. I don't know if it moves the the needle on the Mets trading him or not or thinking about trading him or not, but he's our guy. So keep hitting him. And for Pete, that was 43, 43 home runs. Crazy, man. It's not that long ago, we were sitting down as Met fans in the 90s, and the home run record was well below that. And here we are, Pete, owning the Met record books. So that was nice to see, but it was another loss. <coughs> this, this game, by the way, was a very tough game to watch. You know, I, I've always said throughout the year, uh, I DVR a lot of games. A Saturday afternoon in the fall with nice weather, 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Because I have become accustomed over the last few months that the Mets play Saturday night games and purely selfishly, because I think whenever we talk about start times and what we prefer, prefer, it's all about our lifestyle. It's all about, you know, our work hours, because I was going to talk during the offseason about what start times y'all prefer, because the Mets sent out a survey a few months ago kind of asking, hey, what start times do you like? And 
it's it's a selfish thing. Like what I prefer because it benefits the life I have is far different than what would have benefited me 15 years ago, which means to a lot of people listening would benefit you. But the one thing, tell me if you agree with me on this, a Saturday at two o'clock, I don't know what lifestyle that would benefit. Like, I don't know what kind of Met fan, whether you're a teenager listening, whether you're in your 40s or 80s, or you have kids or you don't have kids. I don't know who wants road games specifically, because it's not like you have an option of going, a Saturday afternoon game in the fall. I don't know. So I was going back and forth on this. I was like, I I mean, I could check the score. The season's over. I don't have to sit down and watch every pitch. Or do I DVR it? So it turned out to be like a real mix between the two. It was my son's birthday. My son's birthday is actually on Monday, but he had his big party on Saturday. So I happened to see the score. Like I wasn't, I wasn't checking for it. But when I happen to see a score, I DVR, I usually get pissed off. I didn't get pissed. I was like, oh, okay, they're, it's 2-2. Because I think I saw it in the third inning. Then I went back and mostly watched it at 11 o'clock at night when everybody was passed out. When the Alabama-Texas game was well decided, I checked it out. And I think a part of that is it's just a weird, it's a difficult start time. And then, like I mentioned at the top of the pot, I don't know who the hell's watching a game on a Sunday afternoon, week one of the NFL season. I get why that's a start time. Sunday afternoons are traditional. But I do wonder, as I do this pod, how many people watch the games? <laughs> and I don't blame you, by the way. I don't say that in any kind of judgmental tone, trust me. Uh, but yeah, Saturday sucks. I think is the moral of the story. 